0: Well, welcome. Uh, welcome on a uh, very warm bank holiday uh, Sunday afternoon. My name is Andy. I'm one of the elders here at Stratum Central Church. Uh, our pastor, Alex, is away for a couple of weeks, and uh, a number of us are stepping in to cover the preaching over August, and we've been exploring uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, the last few weeks. Before we get on, though, uh, let's close our eyes and uh, commit this time to the Lord. What I do is thank you that your word is alive and living, Thank you that as you spoke to the Thessalonians through Paul uh, many thousands of years ago, you speak to us now. I pray that as we open up your word, you give me the wisdom to speak clearly, uh, speak truthfully, point uh, wisely towards you. I pray that we would uh, have hearts that are ready to accept and be challenged uh, and ready to change. I pray that your word would go deep into our lives. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, we've been working through a series uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, before we get stuck in uh, to the final installment, it's worth recapping on some major themes that we've seen through 1 Thessalonians. Paul's letter was written to a small church <coughs> in a big city. Sounds familiar. It was written to a church that he loved and wanted to strengthen and encourage, both in heartfelt empathy and concern, but also in sound teaching, and to point them to the hope that they had as they looked forward to the day when Jesus would return, and his practical encouragement still apply to us today. Back at the beginning uh, of this series, Alex introduced us to the themes of faith, hope and love, and we see these aspects running throughout the letter. Every chapter touches on these ideas in some way. He remembers their faith and is concerned about how it has weathered in the face of the devil's temptations. But encouraged by Timothy's report that their faith is strong and commands them to put their faith on as a breastplate. He wants to remind them of the hope they have in Jesus, not to be like those around them who have no hope, who don't put their trust in him, but to put, have a hope of their sure salvation like a helmet as they face the world. And he wants them to commend their love for each other and spur it on more and more such that it overflows for each other. And he's also been uh, very preoccupied about the second coming. Uh, It's something that Paul keeps pointing to throughout this book. Not because he wants them to worry over the details of when and what that might look like. Um, But because he wants them to live their lives in the light of that reality. Sure in the hope of what Christ has done, expectant of the day he will return and live their lives sold out for it. He wants to strengthen them so that they might be holy and blameless on the day of Christ's return. And again, that emphasis on the coming of Christ is something we see repeated in every chapter throughout 1 Thessalonians. He's finished every chapter with a reference to the return of the Lord Jesus, whether pointing them to the hope or warning them of the wrath that is coming for those who don't believe. His concern is always that the Thessalonians would be ready for that day. And wrapped around all of that is the command to encourage their brothers and sisters in this. So much so that he sends his trusted right hand Timothy to encourage the Thessalonians. This wasn't just a message for individuals but a community facing the challenges of a secular world and false teaching and together they were to go on encouraging each other in these things, building each other up, speaking the truth in love and speaking the truth of God's word to each other. And so we've come to our final instalment, uh, that's in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. I've been remiss, I haven't asked anyone to um, read this, uh, just scanning around. but anyone likes to flip to the back of it, go on Anna. <laughs> um, on the back of your service sheet you can find 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-28. Um, Anna, would you mind uh, reading that for us? Yeah. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care
1: for you in the Lord. I admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil, every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your Holy Spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, And he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us.
0: Bring all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you, before the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Thank you, Anna. And so we've come to our final instalment in Thessalonians, uh, which you just heard read to us. Um, It's titled Final Instructions. And at first glance, it does look a bit like that. Just the last few words. Some good advice. The bits that didn't really fit into the other sections. I was poring over this, struggling to work out what bound it all together. What message was he trying to get across here? Or was it just a hodgepodge of good, practical, helpful advice that you could just pick and choose from? I'll take these verses and I'll take these verses. Um, Just good advice to leaders uh, to how to relate to your fellowship. Good advice to fellowship, how to relate to your leaders and each other. What was God's will for us in this passage? And to be honest, it took Alex to point it out to me. It was blindingly obvious. It's there, right in the passage. And Paul even spells it out for us. Right in the middle. Can you see it? Streatham Central Church. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ. Streatham Central Church. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ. Before we get into what that looks like, it's worth asking the question, why? Why should we rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances? If we just took those three things, we could easily find them in a positive mental attitude book or a motivational speaker's notes, and they might help us for a few days, maybe even a few weeks, but they would quickly fizzle. Has anyone been given one of these uh, for Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, be happy. How long did that take before it got just annoying, a bit too annoying? There's a well-known children's novel called uh, Pollyanna, uh, written in 1913. It centres on a young orphan girl, Pollyanna, who goes to live with her stern aunt, who lives in a dour and depressing town. Pollyanna's philosophy of life centres on what she calls the glad game, An optimistic and positive attitude she learned from her father. The game consists of finding something to be glad about in every situation, no matter how bleak it may be. With this philosophy and her own sunny personality and sincere sympathetic soul, Pollyanna brings so much gladness to her aunt's dispirited town that she transforms it into a pleasant place to live. (laughs) Isn't that nice? Well, as a result of that uh, novel's success, the adjective Pollyannish became a popular term for personality type characterised by an irrepressible optimism. Evident in the face of even the most adverse and discouraging circumstances it's sometimes used contemptuously referring to someone whose optimism is excessive to the point of naivety or refusing to accept the facts of an unfortunate situation. Madeleine Albright quoted uh, in uh, the Opera, Oprah magazine after 9-11 one of the our most shocking events of this century, said said this. I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but I hope that out of this tragedy, like this, something good will come. I hope we understand we're one family. Basically, don't worry. Be happy. (laughs) Look over the darkness. Find something positive in every situation. But come on, the reality is, if we try and be joyful simply because we have a sunny disposition based on, well, nothing but a positive mental attitude, and that's just not going to cut it in our brutal, broken and sinful world. Rejoicing would turn to mourning at the life around us. Prayer would, well, it wouldn't happen really. And giving thanks, well, what's there to you thanks for in this world? The worldview might say, well, rejoice because you are who you are. Rejoice in your own identity. Pray, or actually, in the world's view, work harder for things. Give thanks that you have a home, a job, a family. At the end of the day, those can go in the blink of an eye. The great job you have makes you redundant. You can't afford to pay the rent, so you lose a house. Your family walks out on you because you can't keep a roof over their heads. As for rejoicing in who I am, well, I look at myself, and all I see is selfishness and pride. My self-esteem is shot to pieces, and I hate my very existence, and, and it goes on. Those things are transient. Here today, gone tomorrow, straw houses built of sand, What a flimsy basis on which to rejoice, pray, and give thanks in all circumstances. Maybe we missed a bit, because the passage says, Rejoice always, pray, continue, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. Well, that's solved it. It's God's will that I rejoice, pray, continue, give thanks in all circumstances. So I've just got to paste on that smile, set the alarm clock for 5am, for that two-hour prayer session every morning, Skip my waiting to work. Uh, when I missed the bus and the train and it rained, but I, I still got that smile on my face. And I walked through the rain to miss my most important meeting of the year. And you, could, well, you put on a disciplinary uh, for being late for work. But slap on that smile because it's God's will that I grin through it. Isn't that what the world, or a lot of the world's idea of Christians is? Don't ask questions. Just do it with a smile, even if you don't really mean it. But no, I've missed one vital bit off, haven't I? And you might roll your eyes at my laboured reading of this verse and see where I was going to end up and thought, why doesn't he just get to the point? The reality is that that thought process often reflects our approach to this life. We start out by just trying to have a positive outlook on life. That soon gets us down. So we remind ourselves that if we just prayed a bit harder, if we're happy because God wanted us to be happy... And it will all be right. But that also fizzles and dies on the altar of legalism and mindless God-worship. No, it's utterly vital that Paul says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ. What does it mean to say, for this is God's will for you in Christ? Is it that we read this statement simply as, for you in Christ, that is, if you're in Christ... If you're a follower of Christ, then this is what you must do. Under this reading, God's will, outlined in 16 to 18, rejoice always, etc., is for those who are in relationship with Christ. It's that, that is God's will for you. It's an X equals Y statement, isn't it? You're a Christian, therefore this is how you must act. But I think that fails for the same reasons I gave earlier. It stumbles at the first bit of selfishness, being bound to this God who demands unquestioning happiness. The alternative, however, is to understand following God's will as part of the benefits of being in Christ. Paul frequently speaks about the sphere in which the benefits of God are given to humanity as in Christ Jesus. In Romans 3.25, we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Corinthians 4.1. He gives thanks for the grace given in Christ. So if God's will is understood in that context, following God's will flows out of, is one of the direct benefits, consequences of being in Christ. Just like experiencing God's redemptive power comes from being in Christ, or the gift of eternal life as a result of being in Christ, so also enjoying and responding to living out God's call expressed in his will, is part of his gift. So, yeah. So, also enjoying, responding to, living out God's call expressed in His will is part of His gift for us. It's worth pausing at this moment to think about what it means to be in Christ. It's not a phrase to use in day-to-day life, but it's one Paul uses repeatedly. From the war, from the fall, we've lived a broken relationship with God. Our sin, our rejection of Him as king of our lives, rejecting his rule and authority, willfully doing our own thing, separates us from him. When Christ died on the cross, he willingly bore the punishment for our sins in order to bring us back into relationship with him. And that freely given gift is available for anyone who is in Christ. That is anyone who puts their trust in this sacrifice to save us from the punishment that we deserve. And the best analogy I've ever heard and you'll understand why I like this. It is one of being in crisis like being in an aeroplane. <laughs> you can see where it's going. Um, imagine yourself standing at Heathrow Terminal 5. You're about to board the plane to the most amazing destination. Let's say you're going to the sunny beaches of Barbados this afternoon. And as you sit there waiting for the plane, you're waiting because it's late and it's summer and it's via hot, so uh, you begin to ponder your relationship with the plane and how it's going to get you to Barbados. Would it be any use to be under the plane, slung under the wing? As you go to Barbados? well, that wouldn't really much help. It wouldn't last very long. Would it be helpful to be inspired by the plane, to watch it fly and whisper, one day, one day I'll do that. Maybe think about following the plane. Pick the same direction, copy what it does. You might make it out to the runway after a couple of hours of jogging, but that's not as far as you'd make it. Uh, Let's face it. The relationship you need to have with that plane is not to be under it, not to be inspired by it or following it, you need to be in it. Why? Because by being in that plane, whatever happens to that plane happens to you. If it takes off, you take off. If it flies through rough air, you fly through rough air. If it lands, you land. The question of whether you make it to Barbados is part of a larger question of whether the plane makes it to Barbados. If the plane made it, then so did you. The same can be said of being in Christ. The fact of whether we get to our destination, eternity with God, matters not one job on what we do. It simply requires us to step in the plane, to put our trust in Christ, to be in Christ. Whatever is true of him is true of us. He died, so we have died. He is raised, so we have raised. We will be raised. God looks on him as sinless, so God looks on us as sinless. If his destination is guaranteed, so is ours. So to recap, if we are in Christ, if we put our trust in him, then as well as being blessed with redemption, grace, eternal life, we are blessed with drawing into the sphere of doing his will in Christ Jesus. The reason the Apostle gives for this call to joy, prayer and thanksgiving is the strongest and highest imaginable for the Christian. These aren't optional, secondary helpful extra characteristics that we can do occasionally. Optional extra characteristics of the Christian existence. But they stand at the centre of God's plan for his people in Christ Jesus. The basis for our joy, prayer and thankfulness is no longer based on us, on the whim of our day, week or month, but on something eternal, something utterly magnificent and sure. Christ's death and resurrection. And the sure assurance that those who are in Christ are forgiven, and our hope for eternity is sure. And God's will isn't simply his demand for us, but rather his desire to experience the benefits the grace and mercy shown in Christ for us. i say so that again. God's will isn't simply his demand for us, but rather his desire to experience the benefits of the grace and mercy shown in Christ for us. Now those commands take us into a new lightness, Rather than being overbearing commands of joyless legalism, instead of our joy and our prayer or thank, instead of our joy or prayer or thanksgiving, flows out of the reality of being in Christ. We give thanks because we know how wretched we are, and yet God loved us enough to send His Son to die for us. We give thanks because we have nothing to boast in, nothing we can bring can add to what Christ has done for us. That's not to say we give thanks in for all circumstances. We give thanks in all circumstances because they show Christ's grace and mercy and love for us more clearly. We can be joyful because even though we face daily persecution and scorn, Christ loved us enough to die for us. We have a sure hope that one day he will return and we will be praising him in heaven. We can be joyful not simply because that's a means to an end, because we're being Pollyannish, or because we're being arbitrarily commanded by a faceless, disconnected God. No, we're being joyful because we have a deep, all-encompassing reason to. God loved us enough to call us his children and to send his own son in our place so that we could be in relationship with him again. What an awesome reason to be joyful, to be thankful and to pray to him. What a brilliant reason to be down on our knees daily in prayer, putting our trust in our Father who loves us and has forgiven us. Rather than viewing prayer as a a tick-box thing to do, a tick-box behaviour, comes an attitude of a heartfelt dependence and trust on God and what he's done for us. Based on the reality that we know that if we are in Christ then he has died for us and we are helpless without him. Paul Miller in The Praying Life says, you don't need to be disciplined to, be, to pray continually, you just need to be poor in spirit. Let our joy and thankfulness flow out of prayer, flow out in prayer because we realise how wretched we are how merciful and loving God is in sending his Son to die to us. This isn't to ignore the great suffering Christians face in this world. We've heard a little bit of that already. As we speak, Christians are being persecuted everywhere, from North Korea to South Sudan to Syria. Even here in Europe, where we don't experience anything like the physical and mental persecution that our brothers around the world face, Christianity, that reflects God's Word, God's Word, Teaches Christ as Lord, and His Word is sufficiently sufficient. Is continually marginalised in school. Christians are attacked for their views on sexuality and life during the day, and at night they're the butt of comedians' jokes on TV. Yet we can have joy and thanksgiving based on something that is more secure, <coughs> more eternal, more unconditional than anything this world throws at us. More so, in our sufferings, we can rejoice because we can identify with Christ's sufferings. Not only that, but also glory in his resurrection. We uh, looked at 1 Peter last year. 1 Peter 4, 12-16 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. The spirit of God, glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, or a thief, or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Rejoicing, giving thanks, pouring our lives in dependent prayer on God in the face of suffering must be one of the hardest spiritual disciplines, the hardest part of God's will to live out. Christ sweated drops of sweat, like blood, as he faced suffering. Yet built on what we have in Christ, flowing out of his work on the cross. It is one of the most powerful disciplines in the face of adversity. Streatham Central Church, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ, the will of God for you in Christ. Well that was verses uh, well, three out of sixteen. I promise the rest won't take quite as long. We're not going to go through it all this afternoon. There's just not enough time to do it justice. But I think it's important we grasp the idea of 16 to 18 first, as it makes sense of the rest of the passage, particularly 12 to 15, which we're going to concentrate on today. If I could give the rest of the passage a title, I'd call it Instructions on Living in Peace with One Another. And it's full of imperatives. There's probably about 20 commands in those 16 verses there. It's a call to live in community with your leaders, in relationship with your brothers and sisters. Yet, without the right foundation, without the right motivation, following our leaders, working with each other, even following God's will for our lives as the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it breaks down. You only have to examine what living with each other and with other leaders looks like in the world to see how broken it is. Young people are encouraged to go their own way authority is rejected in preference to self-determination. Who are you to say what I should do? I am my own person. I make my own decisions. Have you noticed that all the popular reality TV shows out there don't have any leaders? Big Brother. Uh, I'm a celebrity. The Island. There's a reason for that. Sorry, there's a reason for that. It produces discord and division. And that makes great TV, doesn't it? Even the TV producers know that authority is a boring thing. On the flip side, leaders become more self-interested. Trust in politicians is at all-time low. The wide-held belief that most are in it for themselves. More interested in self-preservation than leading society. Why would anyone in the current climate want to look up to their leaders? And in relationship with each other... Again, you have to look at how polarised and tribal society is these days. It's not about bearing with each other, instead it's about ridiculing those who don't, who aren't like yourself. Of 5,000 people surveyed in America in relation to the upcoming election, over half believe the opposition is close-minded, while around 4 in 10 are convinced the supporters of the rival party are more lazy, immoral and dishonest than the rest of us. Here in the UK, the gap between Liberals and Conservatives the left and right are what is widening. Just look at social media, and it's clear the antipathy towards the other side is becoming increasingly intense. Let's not kid ourselves, though. Every generation has bemoaned the fact that their young, resents their authority. And uh, society has gone through many cycles of discord and division. So it's fair to say the Thessalonians were facing a situation not unlike ours. In that light, that light, let's examine what the Bible has to say to leaders and to fellowships. How might a Christian community look different? Firstly, he asks us to live in peace with our leaders. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul is pleading with them. That phrase we ask you is more of a sense of beseeching than a simple request. We beseech you to hear these words and not to conform to the way of the world. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. This passage talks about those who care for you in the Lord, more literally those who are over you, who have a charge over you. We're not entirely sure whether these elders were appointed by Paul, or um, simply those who are recognised in the community as having charge over the church. We can draw out some important instructions for those people. They are those who work hard among you, or those who labour diligently among you. Your leaders should be those who work hard for you, among you. The word here means toil, it's gritty, hard work. They should be ones pouring themselves out for you in prayer, in teaching, in training. If they aren't, alarm bells should be ringing. Your Your expectation should be that your leaders are working hard for you. But is it just the idea that they should be pouring themselves out for you out of a sense of duty or command? Paul has helpfully touched on the idea of labour earlier in this book. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your labour prompted by love. Your leaders, your elders, should be ones who work hard for you because they love you. There are many churches around the world, or church leaders, I should say, around the world, who neither labour hard nor love their congregations, and they are either dying or divided congregations. You should expect your elders to work hard for you. You should expect your elders to love you, and you should call them out if they aren't. It's helpful, actually, that Alex isn't here here this afternoon, gives me a chance to talk a bit about him without it getting too awkward for him. Alex is flawed, as any of us are, and remarkably, he's one of the first to point that out, and ready to be open and honest with his struggles and mistakes. But Alex also works hard. Only does he work six days of the week. Those days are often long days. It's not surprising to hear... um, him meeting up to, uh, with someone to read the Bible one-to-one at 7am, or get an email ping through, uh, or even a call at 6 or at worst 10pm in the evening dealing with issues. He's not just someone who locks himself away in the office in pure theological pursuit. His diary is full of people he reads to one-to-one with. I'm amazed at how quick he is at getting down to reading the Bible with someone who's just walked through the door. He loves God's people. He loves you. And like Christ in the church, like a husband and bride, you want bride, who wants to present you as holy and blameless on the day of Christ's return. His prayer is verse 23 there in the passage. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So leaders, work hard. Toil out of love for the people you have in your care. Now over to the Fellowship of Thessalonica. Paul says, we ask you, we plead you, we beseech you, acknowledge those who work hard among you. Quite literally, see or notice those who work hard amongst you. Don't ignore or dismiss them. See them, or as many translations put it, respect or appreciate it. Those who have charge over you, who care for you in a labour of love, who admonish you, those who exhort and instruct you. Hold them in the highest regard. Esteem them highly. I wonder what that might look for us. Our leaders, our elders are those who have care over us, who have a duty to admonish us, to warn us against ungodliness in our lifestyles, our marriages, our relationships. So we should welcome that, even expect it. But the emphasis here is a reproving in gentleness, in love. The chief aspect of leadership is humility, seen most clearly in Christ. So expect those over you to be concerned for your spiritual health and respect their authority, but expect it to carry with it gentleness and humility. When Alex comes with a word of caution, of warning, before we push back, before we say how dare dare he interfere, let's realise that it is his God-given responsibility to lovingly and gently do that. And it's ours to hear it and appreciate it. Not only that, but to hold them in the highest regard for that, to esteem them esteem him very highly. Why? Because of their work, their labour of love for you. I'm sure we've all experienced churches where we've been able to cruise through church life, where the leader is praised for his laid-back, light touch. But let me challenge you, that is a church where the leader isn't living up to God's calling, giving responsibility, isn't living up to the God-given responsibility of caring for his congregation. And the congregation isn't holding them to the highest regard for their labour of love for them. And it's noticeable, the way Paul closes out that short section. Live in peace with one another. It'd be easier to link that with the next section, to be honest. It kind of makes more sense. Surely Paul is saying this to the fellowship themselves. But no, it's notable that he opens the next statement with the phrase brothers and sisters. That's normally Paul's way of changing the subject, moving on to the next point. So it's clear that why you could apply it to both sets of instructions, he intends it to belong to the relationship of the leader and the fellowship. Why? Because as a church where the leader isn't working hard, nor loving their flock, and a congregation that doesn't acknowledge the position the leaders have been placed in, and holds them in the highest regard for carrying out that labor of love, is one that isn't at peace with itself. Paul says real peace comes from living in peace with your leadership. Leaders, work hard for those who are under your care, your charge, out of a deep love for them. Congregation, recognise and acknowledge those who have care over you and welcome their admonishment and hard work as a sign they love you, such that you all might live in peace with one another. Secondly and finally, live in peace with each other, one another, within your fellowship. Sorry, live in peace with one another, within your fellowship. What follows here is a whole list of commands. Commands that apply equally to leaders as well as fellowship. And there's a sense that these aren't easy things to do. Paul again implores his readers. I urge you. We aren't naturally inclined to pull our brothers and sisters up, are we? That might be because we're, well, just British and it's a bit awkward to be challenging with each other. It might, however, be that in challenging others we feel the spotlight shine on us rather than face that scrutiny or have to examine our own lives, we dodge that difficult conversation and move on, losing that opportunity to help the struggling brother and sister. But no, Paul urges them to speak up. He doesn't say, wait until your ducks are in line, wait until you feel sorted, until God has purged those things out of you before you can point them out in your brother and sister. No, there shouldn't be hypocrisy. There shouldn't be a case of taking the speck out of your brother's eye while you have a plank in your own. Stretch the metaphor, we will always have chips of wood in our eyes to a greater or lesser degree. And we can come in gentle humility, our brothers and sisters recognizing our own sinfulness, but still able to help them in their struggles with sin while welcoming welcoming them, pointing out things out in our own lives too. With that in mind, we urge you to warn those who are idle and disruptive. Idle isn't simply those who are a bit lazy, who could work a bit harder. The sense here is. Uh, in chapter 5 is those who are idle, uh, ill-disciplined, or in a disorderly way, even in a disruptive way. It's a word that might be used for soldiers who are out of rank or deviating from their orders. It was used in Greek society for those who didn't show up to work. I wonder as we apply this to our fellowship, our relationship with our brothers and sisters, it's not stretching things too much. Think of ways in which our lives might be ill-disciplined and disorderly in a church context. Maybe it's a more relaxed attitude to turning up to church or our gospel community because, well, our time is precious and we're a small group and I know everyone, so it doesn't really matter if I don't hitch up. Maybe it's giving church a miss because I feel life's just a bit too busy. I could do it a day off. Perhaps it's uh, to do with reaching out with the gospel. Are we guilty of leaving it up to others? We're thinking, are are there ways that our attitude leads us to be ill-disciplined and disruptive? Are we willing and prepared to receive gentle loving correction from our brothers and sisters in that? Secondly, encourage the disheartened or the timid and the faint hearted. Help the weak, be patient with everyone. <clears throat> encourage the disheartened, those who are struggling, those who are facing persecution. Things are pretty full on in Thessalonica. There would have been people who are disheartened in the face of persecution, who are feeling timid and faint hearted. Who in our fellowship is feeling disheartened, timid and faint-hearted? And let's be honest, we all feel timid from time to time. Let's not assume Alex is immune from feeling disheartened or timid in the face of struggles. The word encouragement here is drawn out of the idea to relate nearby. The implication being that to encourage people, you have to be nearby alongside in their lives. This isn't something we can do from afar or in a detached way. Encouragement requires us to be in each other's lives. Are we in each other's lives enough to be able to encourage them? That's hard to do regularly on a church-wide level, but on a gospel community level, are we in each other's lives enough to encourage them? It's worth saying at this point, as we grow, as we gain people who come from broken backgrounds, they all need a lot of encouragement. They all need a lot of encouragement. That's not a case of just saying, hello, how are you doing on a Sunday afternoon? It's the case of regularly looking out for them, asking after them, dropping them a text or a call through the week, opening up our homes, not just when we're ready and prepared, but when we're not ready because they need welcoming in. And let's be honest, that's hard work and it's sacrificially time and energy consuming. It's worth praying that God grows our numbers in our own capacity and that we would be able to support those who are struggling. As we grow with people from other religions, we're going to go even more out of the limb. Not only will they have given up their religion to follow Jesus, but they will have almost definitely given up their family to follow Him. And we will be the only real family they have. If we aren't able to get alongside and encourage them when they feel disheartened and timid, they will quickly fall away. Help the weak, hold on to them, cling to them. Is it the weak in conscience, in faith, weak morally, weak financially? It's not completely clear. But let's have all of those people in mind, shall we? Let's help the weak. If your brother struggles, uh, help him. If your sister struggles, help them. If someone's getting a hard time at work for the gospel, let's help them. If someone is weak in their face, let's help them. Overall, that, be patient with everyone. One of the fruits of the Spirit. We have to be patient with everyone. There's no excuse for not being patient with the idle, the ill-disciplined, and disheartened, the weak. Church is family. Family relationships aren't easy. Be patient in your gospel communities in your serving teams. And patience and forgiveness goes hand in hand, so it's not surprising that verse 5 closes out with forgiveness. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong with wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Over all of that is forgiveness. But how do we do all this? Surely we're going to burn out at some point. Our leaders are going to come over bearing. Our fellowships are going to grumble. Our brothers and sisters are going to be destructive and drag us down. Eventually it's going to be too much, isn't it? No. Stratum Central Church. Rejoice. Be joyful in all things. Pray. Fall on your knees in dependence on God. Continue to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ. If we just worked our way through verses 12 to 15 and stopped there, you could pick most of that out of a good positive thinking book. And the same reasons I gave earlier eventually would have burnt out. In self-centeredness, we would have gone our own way, rejecting the authority over those, of those over us, frustrated with our brother's weaknesses, questioning why we bear with each other. Why? Because we're all called to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, because that is the will of, or the desire of God for those in Christ. You are in Christ. Your hope is secure. Christ will return and take you to be with the Father. We have been blessed with redemption, grace and God's will for our lives, which is to be joyful, pray and give thanks. Threaten Central Church, rejoice, be thankful, be joyful in all things. Pray, fall on your knees in dependence on God continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ, so that you might live in peace with one another. We're carrying on a bit in time. Uh, A lot of that practical stuff is what we need to work out together. Um, uh, We normally have a a section at the end of the service uh, expressing the truth in love um, with each other. That means speaking the truth into each other's lives. That is what we've just been teaching about, talking about um, speaking into each other's lives, admonishing, correcting, encouraging, building up, helping each other. So, we're not going to do that quite yet. We're going to sing a song, um, but afterwards, take the time afterwards in your groups to pull this apart. Think about what it means for you, um, what it means for how you accept correction and encouragement, what it means for you how to give correction and encouragement. If anything, as a a society, we're much more reticent to give. Um, We're more happy to accept it often than uh, and out on a limb and give. So think about how we might actually give uh, challenging encouragement to our brothers and sisters. We're going to turn now and
1: uh, hand over to...